Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. No, nice to see you all. Thanks for having me. So just to get a bit of context at the beginning, what were the circumstances of Nazanin's arrest? Um, hello, everyone. So, so Nazanin, for those, I'm sure you'll know the story quite well, but, but um, Nazanin's my husband, my, my wife, went to uh, um, Iran in 2016 for a family holiday um, for two weeks with our then one and three quarters old daughter. Um, and at the end of the two weeks was arrested at the airport as she was leaving, um, which we were completely blindsided by. Um, what happened was she was taken away somewhere, interrogated, put into solitary confinement. Um, they didn't say where she was or who'd got her for a number of weeks. Um, the first family visit we had with her, which is her parents, was after um, more than a month. Um, and by that stage, we had gone public. Um, what, what, hap- what was going on at that time was um, a number of people had been picked up um, by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard um, in the immediate aftermath of the nuclear deal. Um, now, we didn't know that because most were, were quiet. Um, we were one of those people that was picked up. Um, and there was a fairly standard pattern which happened for us, which was taken away, put into solitary, interrogated, get to confess stuff, um, family terrified, family told um, to keep quiet. Um, and I, I mean, I was completely disarranged. I obviously was, was in London, hadn't gone on this trip. Um, knew that my in-laws were terrified, really terrified of what was going on, and they wanted me to keep quiet. So I probably sat by the phone and did nothing for a week, um, to my shame, did, did nothing for a week, um, and just then became more troubled and then went to Amnesty and went to different organ- to, you know, different people would know what was going on. Now, we told the Foreign Office and they said, well, we won't do anything until you want us to. Um, it took us took me a while to, through different human rights groups, meet other people who'd been picked up in this way or the families of those who were currently being held and, and understand quite what she was going through. And it probably, for me, after about three weeks, that's when I emotionally understood that actually Nazanin wasn't just waiting to get on the next plane, but she was being held in solitary confinement and being interrogated and blindfolded and, and all sorts of horrible stuff. Um, and I'd sat and done nothing about it. Um, and the wheels fell off for me in that sense. Like I'd been going to work normally uh, until that point. Um, and I probably took a while to realise, OK, I think I need to do something. And that kind of un- unclear, must do something, don't know what, kind of, kind of um, emotional space, decided to go public. Um, and probably the best advice I had, and it was from a, um, a former political prisoner in Iran himself. He said, listen, you... you you can't go unpublic once you've gone, so take some time to persuade or to talk to her family so that they're ready. And, and they probably were not ready for many, many months, but accepting of, of me deciding to... And, and my father-in-law, who you know, was terrified and desperately wanted to protect his little girl and, and didn't want any of this to happen, and was dealing with a, with a traumatised two-year-old, not, not even two at that point, who you know, had lost her mum and lost her dad and could barely speak any Farsi at that point. Um, and just getting there, her through the day, um, when she would keep going to the door, and we'll be waking up in the middle of the night, calling out for a mum, and all that kind of human trauma. Um, but he, in fairness, was very, you know, clear to the revolutionary guard interrogators that was holding us near that her husband wants to speak out, and, and got them to agree that it was okay before before I did it. Um, so we went public, and when we went public, we 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 didn't know why she was being held. We didn't know what was going on. Um, we just knew she was being held and she was held in solitary and she'd been taken away. Um, and it probably took us a very long time to put together the pieces. Um, you know, and, and it, I think probably even at this point, for me, with campaign, it's almost like you, you need to push the button to see what happens. It's only through doing stuff that actually we've ever discovered what's going on. Um, so after we went public, um, Nazni got moved um, prisons, and when she got moved, the people who had originally taken her put out statements saying she was being held for overthrowing the regime and, and crazy stuff. Um, and I was you know, very tough on the airwaves saying, this is you know, what kind of nonsense. Um, it, she was 
the fact we, we would give her messages to say, listen, if the British government makes the agreement, we'll release her without charge. But she was eventually convicted um, on secret charges um, for five years. So, so, you know, they wouldn't even say what the crime was even at that point. Um, to this day, she's never been given a copy of what she was convicted of. Um, and that's the... The Iranian Revolutionary Court is designed to be scary. It's designed to be sort of, you don't want to be caught up in it. And, and almost by definition, if you're in front of the judge, you must be guilty of something. Um, and his job is to, to, you know, give a lesson to everyone. Um, most of her court file was actually press cuttings from statements I've been making. So, listen, you're clearly an important person because look at the world's media talking about you. Therefore, we know we've got an important British operative here. Um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like medieval witchcraft, you know, if, if, if you survive, then you must be guilty. Um, she, in fact, I don't think the, the allegations against Nazneem were ever really clarified until a second court case was opened against her, um, which, later, which was in the following 18 months later, which actually was when she was due to be eligible for parole, so just before she could have been released. Um, and there, there was propaganda putting out saying, listen, she's been involved in training journalists and so on, which had a relationship with what the then Foreign Secretary, now Prime Minister, has said. Um, but also, in fairness, her job, um, I mean, she wasn't doing it, but, but her job is to do journalism training projects where she's the this managerial assistant on it, but, um, but yeah, but they do happen. Um, so, with Nazanin's story, we... It always felt from the very beginning really crazy and almost deliberately crazy. Like it's accusing us of a mum and a baby on holiday of, of, of being uh, trying to overthrow the regime is if anyone that has had a one and a half year old, all you do is chase the one and a half year old down and try and get them to eat something and then sleep and, and, and life is really quite simple. Um, and I think it's, Nazanin's case was deliberately provocative from the Revolutionary Guard to, to send a very clear signal that actually anyone from the diaspora that was wanted to come back wasn't safe at the moment. What, the context at that time, and it's a different context now, but at that time, um, the nuclear deal between Iran and, and Western powers had, had just been signed. Um, and that had a consequence where there were those who were um, trying to sort of improve relations and, and a thawing of relations and new businesses and so on. Lots of delegations going over doing stuff. And then the Revolutionary Guard was still, who, under sanctions, and end up controlling quite a lot of the economy, were, were worried about losing um, that control because they were still under sanctions. So, so the initial wave of people that were taken were actually businessmen who were just signalling, listen, if you want to come and do business here, you, you've got to take us, you've got to give us a cut, otherwise it, it doesn't happen. Um, and some of those who are still behind bars now, were taken before us, were, were businessmen. Then there was another wave which would have been someone like Nazneem where people that could be profiled as being some kind of activist. So normally they worked in the charity sector or they were... Um, environmentalists, um, or there were quite a few academics were taken, um, and kind of just signalling to those sort of, I mean, almost like in-betweeners, those that, that are able to operate in, in the West and operate in Iran, that, that actually, don't you think the old rules have changed here just because we signed this nuclear deal, that we're, we're still in charge and you will still um, respect our power? Um, and so that typically there was a stage where those are the profile of people that picked up, and, and most countries have had people taken. Um, the UK has probably got the most at the moment um, through dynamics that developed, but, but most Western countries have, and in fact, many other countries have as well. Um, and the second dynamic, which, which I alluded to, is fairly early on in Nazneen's imprisonment, so within a couple of months, um, she was told that, listen, if the British government makes the agreement, then we'll release you. Um, and she and, and many others are held for leverage, so held as bargaining chips um, for stuff that... Um, the Iranian regime wants off other countries. Um, and that obviously creates a tension um, between, say, us as a family and what our interests are and what the UK government's interests are, um, where at the beginning that was fairly tacit and not really understood, but, but over time has become a bit more pointed, um, where, yeah, it, it's, it's clear that they have an agenda at points that's different from ours um, and, and might be perfectly sympathetic, but also national interests are different from family interests. It sounds like the Iranian strategy is a, a streak of wrongful imprisonments, hold the prisoners, and then see what opportunities they have to use them as leverage. W what areas do they use the leverage for? So at the moment, 
Um, I mean, I think that's, that's probably exactly fair. I, I think there is, there is an element of, of scaring the Iranian diaspora who's coming back and, and, and being scared of their potential to sort of bring funny foreign ideas and change. Um, there will be certain sectors of people that are more vulnerable. So when we were first taken, it was typically people connected to the IT world and the internet, and they're very worried about the internet as a sort of an alternative source of, of information. Um, then there was a whole wave of environmentalists taken, which everyone was blindsided about, but because the environment was a big global movement that you know, has all these kind of connections and so on, that was, was threatening, particularly to guys doing sort of big, profitable engineering projects that had environmental consequences. Um, and in terms of the leverage, so people get picked up, what do they get held for? It, it varies, it varies. So um, in our case, and in the case of a few of the Americans, because there are pots of money that sit under sanctions. So Iranian money that's being held in Western banks, um, and people are held as leverage, to, as collateral to get that money released. Um, that would have been, there's a, a very famous Washington Post journalist, Jason Rezaian, um, and four other Americans released in January 2016 in return for um, a load of, Amer America, of Iranian money being repatriated to Iran, which is the thing that Donald Trump always talks about as cash on pallets and so on. Um, that would be the case in the, in the UK example, is, is there's a, a debt that the UK owes Iran that, that, that it's been sitting on for, for the best part of 40 years. Um, in other cases, there are prisoners. It's a prisoner swap. Um, so there are a number of... Iranians who have been arrested for breaking sanctions, um, normally at the behest of the, U the US, but, but not exclusively. Um, and there will be people picked up from so Australian example, example. Australia's been picked up because Australia has arrested some Iranians um, for breaking sanctions. So, and, and that's signalled as a will to a swap, you know, we're holding you for a prison swap. Um, normally, I say normally, increasing the revolution got a, a beginning, increasingly open about it. Um, and it, as has the Iranian government. And, and there is a, we were talking about it upstairs, there's a tension between the Revolutionary Guard operates fairly powerfully and fairly independently from the regular government. But for example, three weeks ago I was at the UN, um, at UNGAR, which is the sort of annual jamboree of, of the world leaders. Um, and Iranian Foreign Minister Zarif was in New York marketing quite clearly that he would do um, a swap for the Americans, and he would do, you know, if there was progress on the debt court case with the UK, there could be progress on Nazanin's case. So that's a much more open position than the Iranian authorities have historically been, where they've been a lot more, um, you know, said things privately, but denied it publicly. Can you just uh, kind of break down the difference between the, the Iranian government and the Revolutionary Guard and how that applies to the imprisonments? I mean, it, it, it depends who you talk to. So I think, I think um, without naming which minister, but certain ministers would, um, here would view them as not so disconnected. Um, but broadly, the, the, if you think the, the Revolutionary Guard is kind of a mixture of, of, in Iran, having almost like the border authority now and um, the security services um, and controlling quite a lot of the economy. So certainly the, IT, the telecommunications sector and uh, the, the construction sector and the oil sector. So quite big parts of the economy. So a bit like where the Egyptian military has sort of grown into becoming a, 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 a multifarious uh, component. You have a big corporate interest that, that um, has lots of power. Every time anyone goes in and out of the airport, they control all those crossings. Um, and equally, they've got responsibility for policing um, security threats. And since they've been given that increase, they, they've expanded their scope to take all sorts of people um, yeah, in the last few years. Um, but they're kind of, essentially, it's sort of a mixture between sort of, I don't know, what would HMRC and MI6 merged together in, in, in UK terms. Um, the government is a regular government, except it would not have authority over the Revolutionary Guard. The Revolutionary Guard's job is to defend the revolution, um, to report to the Supreme Leader. The government also reports to the Supreme Leader. So nominally, it's, you've got the Supreme Leader who is supreme, and then different factions pulling in different directions. Um, and in sort of the simple way it tends to get understood in my head, um, but, but, but many of them answer, you know, you, you do have a tension between, if you want the hardliners, the, the sort of purists who, who would be sure that, that the world is a conspiracy against them and their job is to defend the revolution and defend um, Iran's integrity from a whole series of enemies, some of whom haven't yet manifested. It's a bit like, almost like the war on terror used to be, where you may not have even seen a terrorist yet, but you knew it was there. Um, that kind of amorphous... Where someone like Nazanin 
could be taken and genuinely represent a certain kind of threat, even though she hasn't done anything. She's the kind of person that could. Um, and then the, revel the, the, the regular government, you know, the guys that sit in, in Kensington and the embassy and, and the ambassador came <coughs> and, and, and spoke to you guys, um, you know, would be trying to operate like a, a regular <coughs> respectable government and, and would have limited leverage over the Revolutionary Guard. And, you know, what's clear in our case, we, we've been campaigning quite hard to try and pressure the British government, but also to pressure the Iranian government to take responsibility for their own security services and what they're doing. Um, with mixed success, I think. I think, you know, we've been what, campaigning for three, three and a half years. Um, we're clearly an annoyance. We're clearly um, an embarrassment <coughs> at some level. I don't think... One of the things we've been campaigning about increasingly explicitly is, is this idea of hostage-taking and, and actually, you know, Nazneen's a hostage, many other people are hostages. You, you have a practice of state hostage-taking, which is, isn't a criminal gang doing it, this is, this is an arm of government doing it. Um, Iran does it. Iran's not unique. So you can see China doing hostage diplomacy, you can see other countries um, doing it. And there is a, an evolving kind of erosion of norms, almost, that this has become, an, um, not acceptable, but increasingly tacitly a, um, occurring practice. Um, it, yeah, it, it, it has been really hard to get the wider um, British government, the wider world, to acknowledge this as hostage-taking um, because it has all sorts of implications um, for how government should be responsible for solving it. Um, so, so we've had a... Um, kind of a, an interesting tension where we've learned to get more explicit about what, what's, what's going on in our view. We've found that the British government has been very reluctant to acknowledge it, and the Iranian government has been very reluctant to acknowledge it, and, and <coughs> really wanting to, to, to talk about Nazneen's case in terms of, of this is someone that fell foul of a fairly paranoid system, doing the wrong thing, got into trouble, um, can ask for clemency and could be released. That's kind of how the Iranian regime would want to solve it. That's kind of how um, the British government would, would, would want to solve it. And not to sort of acknowledge the reality of, of, of the situation in Iran and, and elsewhere. What, what my sense currently is... And, um, hostage taking for the Iranian hardliners has been a fairly successful tactic um, in recent times. And because it's been a successful tactic, it's, it's growing in, in prevalence. So I think, yeah, in the last three months, I don't know, maybe another, another 10 people have been taken. Um, that, that's quite a lot. I mean, it, you know, when we were taken, it would be sort of, there was one a month being taken, but that was kind of... Um, and I, I think that's where we've been able to be annoying enough to, to get some sort of presence for Nazanin's case, profile for Nazanin's case, you know, most people have heard of Nazanin's case, most people in the British government will be sympathetic and, and want to solve it and be a bit embarrassed about it. Um, most people on the Iranian government, the regular part, would, would be embarrassed about it and want to solve it. Perhaps less persuaded that she's completely innocent, but, but nonetheless would regard this as not in Iran's interest. Whether the sort of Iranian revolutionary guard view hostage-taking as a bad idea, I don't think we've got there yet. I think it's still a, a, you know, a, a prevalent tactic. So you say that Iran is getting increasingly open about taking prisoners and saying that, you know, they have certain demands which, if they're met, they'll release the prisoners. Has there been a quid pro quo for Nazanin? And has that not been taken up? So, so yes is, is the short answer, um, and, and yes is the, the second answer. Um, the... When Nazanin was... I mean, I was saying, when Nazanin was first taken, there was a whole scary bit where she was accused of all sorts of things, and then um, she was told by the interrogators, listen, the British government makes, makes the agreement, then we'll, we'll release you without charge. Now, they didn't specify at that point, that would have been in June 2016, it wasn't specified for a while that the quid pro quo was if the British government um, pays the debt that it owes Iran, um, then she'll be released. Um, at periodic points when she was eligible for parole, that was made more explicit. Um, but more, we have an interesting kind of... I mean, probably the, the thing most people will know about in Nazanin's case um, is the Boris Johnson gaffe. So when the current Prime Minister was Foreign Secretary, he was asked about Nazanin's case in Parliament. Um, and 
clearly hadn't read his brief properly um, and said, listen, you know, it's, it's a terrible case. And he understood it. She was just training journalism um, and, you know, terrible to be arrested. Um, which is, is a fair enough point in itself. But what happened was that was then used by the, Revolu by the, by the Revolutionary Court to justify um, her imprisonment. And the second court case was opened and she was hauled in front of the judge um, and going to be given a double sentence and a huge furore built up um, where you know, we suddenly went from being, I was saying, like on page 15 of the newspapers to suddenly on the front page because the Foreign Secretary, again, his irresponsibility had caused this to happen. And, and um, that's probably the only time in my life I've genuinely been an important person. Like, I remember going in to, to meet with the Foreign Secretary for the very first time. Um, and there being like 40 cameras waiting outside filming. And you know when you sort of see on the news, when you know, Mr. Important Person, do you think it's been a, a useful media? Well, yes, I hope it'll be a useful media. And then you go in and there's... And it was that kind of, you know, and doing this sort of... We did a press conference straight afterwards, which was covered live on Sky, and they dumped Prime Minister's questions to cover our press conference. Now, they don't do that now. That, that was just that brief moment where we were really important, where, and it became an issue <coughs> about whether Boris Johnson's going to have to resign, but actually became an issue, there had been a sort of a couple of ministers had just gone, whether the whole Brexiteer element of the, camp, of the, of the cabinet's going to go, what's going to happen with it, and, and we suddenly became a, a coat peg for a much bigger set of politics than was anything to do with us. Very stressful to go through, but, um, but actually, you know, good for our profile and good for important significance, and we always had a reach after that that we didn't have before. Um, that was all a sort of a Punch and Judy show for what was really going on, which was that there was this debt that the UK owes that was in court in London with the UK and Iran haggling over it. Um, and it had not gone in favour of Iran, it had been kicked down the road again. So the Revolutionary Court was signalling, listen, we're going to create all this song and dance unless, um, unless this gets solved. And there's been a whole series of kind of crazy stuff that's happened in our case where periodically we'll be, that's new, I think it's taken to... Um, mental hospital in chains, or, or, or get, um, you know, gets brought in front of a health commission, or the second court case gets open, then closed, and stuff that doesn't make sense on the face of it. Like, why, why is this happening? Like, uh, I mean, if you're going to convict a convictor, like, but, but it's it's a signalling. It's it's a, you know, there's a, there's essentially a, a tango going on between two court cases, and weird stuff happens on ours, but makes sense because there's other court cases opened. Um, now, it's not explicitly said in. I mean, it'll be explicit in the, in the parole hearings that, listen, we're holding you for this, but in that court case, she's accused of being a, you know, spreading propaganda or, or whatever else. Um, and it's obviously denied in the debt court case that there's anything to do with it, and, and so it should, shouldn't have anything to do with them. Um, but those two things run in tandem, um, and we have seen not just the strange stuff in Nazanin, but other people be picked up where things haven't progressed um, on that debt court case, which creates, and as I was saying, this sort of tension between us and the government about, listen, this is clearly your fight and, and you, you've got your reason for fighting and, it, and it's not for me to say, how, but we are getting the blowback, we're getting the consequences of your failure to solve this. Um, and um, you'll hear me on the media often talking about, like, the government has an obligation to protect people. Like, that's its first job. Um, and it is conspicuously failing to do it. Um, one of the things that, one of the points of tension, I'll go with technical on you, um, the Foreign Office will, the government will always talk about Nazanin's case as being a consular case, um, and you know, they will not talk of her being a hostage, they'll talk about her being a consular case, and she is a consular case, it's handled by the consular services, <coughs> that's perfectly fair. Um, part of the reason why it insists on framing her case as a consular case, rather than as a hostage or anything else, is, is because under UK law, so all states have consular rights vis-a-vis um, -vis other states. So if, if one of your, one of a British citizen is held in Italy, British state has an, a right to go and visit that citizen, a right to check that, that's, which is there to compensate for the fact that your citizen might not be able to speak Italian, might not know what's going on and so on. Um, the state has that right. As a citizen, you have no rights. So, so under a UK law, there is no right to constant protection. The government can choose to help. It doesn't have to. It doesn't have to at all. Um, You've got a right to be protected from torture. You've got a right to various things. That, but, but there's a way in which the framing of, of, of Nazanin's case or any other case as a constant case allows for it to be entirely discretionary what the government does. Um, in our case, it's quite clear, and it'll be clear in many others, that there's, there's obviously a tension between national interests, which is what we're doing this arm um, haggling over, over paying this debt, and family interests, which are protect Nazanin and bring it. So, by making sure that it's discretionary, the government can choose to do something, it doesn't have to, 
Um, and actually, we've had a long battle to get the government to acknowledge any violation. It took more than two years for the government to acknowledge any violation of Nazmi's rights. Now, that's, it's bonkers what happened, in, in, and that's after she's been accused of being a spy um, while on holiday. It's accused of, of well, while the Foreign Secretary's words have been taken to, to justify. Um, but they wouldn't put into writing for very long. I mean, in fact, it's, it, it, gratitude to, to Jeremy Hunt when he was Foreign Secretary. He was the first one that did it. Um, they wouldn't acknowledge that she was innocent. Um, because, again, it, it, you know, it, it, it creates a set of you know, public expectations. Well, hang on, what are you doing to protect an innocent person that's being held in this situation? Um, so I think that kind of frame, and it depends how you know, our case is conspicuous, but there are a number of families, um, not just in Iran, of, of, of other cases. You end up, I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with the case of Matt Hedges, who was um, a British PhD student that was picked up in the UAE last year and held for six months. Um, again, unfairly. Very bitter family at the end of it all. Um, there's a, a case of a guy called Andy Segi who was kidnapped um, in Yemen and taken to Ethiopia and sentenced to death in absentia. Again, the government wouldn't um, protest against that. You get really quite... This, what is, it's almost like a basic expectation, I suppose. It's about like, you know, if, if, if you're subject to a you know, terrible crime in the UK, you'd go to the police and, and you'd expect them to, to do their best to sort it. Now, they might, in reality, do, a, do a, a poor job at it, but that would be their obligation to do it. This is a context where actually the government hasn't an obligation and it takes a long time to realise that actually, you know, that they're doing their job, which is to, to balance your concerns with national concerns about trade deals. Or whatever. So I, I used to get infuriated as to why we're, you know, sending delegations out to do another business deal and we're doing a new oil deal um, while Nazanin's in prison. Like, you know, if Nazanin wasn't in prison, what would we be doing? We'd be doing business deals and oil deals. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't, I, I mean, that, it's just morally that feels wrong. Um, and, and partly that is because that's the legal framework that they have to work with. They're, they're, they're just doing their job, um, which is to, to promote the national interest and so on. Um, so I think, for me, there's kind of, there's kind of three, three lessons that I take away from uh, our story, which is the you know, human story that, that's on the television a lot, which is you know, really tough experience for Nazanin to be in prison. It's... it's Terrible uh, as a, a sort of a campaigning husband to, to go through it, um, and it's you've got the sort of how outrageous the Iranian government's being and, and how useless the British government being. It's typically how the media cover the story, um, and that's true and, 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 and runs through most of the sort of the ways in which you'll ever hear us um, me, me talk on the radio. But there are three deeper things. One is is this right to constant protection. The fact that, that, is, that legally you've got more rights if you trip on the pavement than if you're taken taken hostage in a foreign country, which, which is just bonkers. Like, the law should be different. Um, so I think we will work um, long-term to try and change that. The, the second one, I, as we've, we've already talked about, which is this idea of state hostage-taking. Um, and actually, no one... The way... We were talking about that upstairs. The way in which most countries deal with this, um, and, and as I said, Iran has taken from many, many countries, is to quietly resolve it, um, to keep it discretionary, and, and not to acknowledge what's really going on. Um, which, on the individual level, can work, but of course it's like all forms of abuse. If you don't address it, it grows, and it becomes a successful tactic, and, it, and it, you know, it silence is always enabling in, in all forms, whether we're talking about financial corruption or, or meeting stuff or, or hostage-taking. Um, and, and there is a way in which this is not being addressed um, that, that is, you know, cannot be done by an individual country. It needs to be done... Um, you know, at the UN level, at um, international cooperation. Um, and, mo yeah, almost all countries are like, the US is probably the only the exception because they're an outlier in lots of ways. And then the third thing, which I, I have been really struck by and, and shocked by um, from our story, um, and shocked by partly, you know, in the aspect of the crew. So, so for three and a half years, our story has been about whether the British government pays the debt to Iran or not. And that, that's a policy choice, let's be honest. You know, it, it, I, I mean, obviously I would have a perspective sitting here as, as, as Nathan's husband, but as the country, there is a decision to make about whether we want to pay up and incentivise or not pay up and, and <coughs> how do we protect people in that consequence. And, and, you know, the UK's instinct is basically to wait till the other side stops demanding it. Um, but that debt, I mean, obviously the Foreign Office didn't tell us, like, that debt is managed by a secret, it belongs to a secret government company and it's uh, managed in a secret court case 
Um, it doesn't put its accounts in front of Parliament. And there's a whole kind of, what would it be a nice word, off-balance sheet bit of government that, that does various things that, okay, in our case, it's, it, I mean, it, to that company, that's, a, that's an arms trading debt. So you can see why that would be secretive, because it's a, it's a murky area. But actually, there are, centrally, there are lots and lots of, of government companies that are being kept away from Parliament and they're not putting their account. You don't know how many there are. Centrally, they don't know how many there are. They don't know how many, what the the liabilities are, what the risks are, what... The cornerstone, this is, okay, now going off piece to being a a real accountant, the cornerstone of democracy for me is not voting, it's it's accountability. So it's about the fact that for all the taxes that get collected, you have to justify what's done with the money. That's, you know, financial scrutiny is what we had a civil war over. We didn't ever have one over it extend the franchise. Um, the fact that you can have, I mean, we were in the Gladstone, not we? So one of, the, one of the really dysfunctional aspects of, of, of British public spending is that the government get, governments get a budget for a year, um, they spend it for the year, and then in March they blow the rest of the budget each year, and, and the university will do it in its own way, and everyone will have their ways. The reason why they do that is because any money they didn't spend, they have to give back, and that's called the consolidate. And the reason why that is is to stop people sitting on a pa- pile of cash and doing dodgy things with it. Um, and it's a really important safety valve for, stop, for keeping, keeping politics honest. Where you've got secret companies keeping pots of money or, or risks that, that you know, actually suddenly it turns out we owe half a billion dollars to, well, it is, it's half a billion dollars um, to the Iranians. Um, and you don't know how many of these there are. It really undermines, A, what's going on from Parliament, but, but also you can have them in our situation where someone can be taken hostage over it, you, we, no one had any idea of it. Um, and that, I think, for me, is, is the most sobering part of our story, is there is a sort of a, a real human tragedy and, and, and bit that gets profiled and gets well understood, but you've got a context that, by and large, doesn't get airtime, doesn't get covered, and that is not unique. There are other examples of this where really, we, we, there are risks that, that Parliament doesn't know about. Is and that, again, that's just, it, it, it's, it's sobering now. I'm, I'm really surprised to hear you say that whether or not the UK government pays a debt mm. is a policy decision, a national mm. policy decision, as if you have to be neutral on this. So what action are you campaigning for the government to take up? So we, we pushed... We pushed really hard to get something called diplomatic protection. Um, diplomatic protection is a really obscure bit of international law. Um, the last time anyone in the UK, an individual in the UK, got it was 1851. Um, so, so it's properly obscure, right? Like, um, and, and bless the foreign office, they don't know what to do with it because it's like, again, in fairness, there is no rule book. Um, but, but what that did in simple terms was A, there's a process whereby it recognised Nazine as British. And lots of the time the Foreign Office was always saying, oh, she's a dual national, kind of distancing themselves from obligations. By saying she's British, they own, this is our citizen, we're going to protect her. Um, but also, you need to assert that, uh, you know, there's been a gross injustice to, to claim it, which, you know, so there's a, an owning of the fact there's an injustice or something. Once you've invoked diplomatic protection as a government, you can do kind of anything to, to you know, claim justice. Now, you might go to court, and the court with the International Court of Justice is a whole process to go through. It would be quite a long way from being able to do that. You could impose sanctions. You could do ver- you, you can do various things that impose a cost. You could also say, listen, okay, you've got, we've got a dispute here, which is that you know you've got our um, prisoner unfairly held, our, our citizen. We want them back. You've got a dispute around you want the money. So you can also it creates a mechanism whereby, if you wanted to solve in a soft way, you, you could do it also. Um, I think. It is not my place. I mean, there, there are two responsibilities. I've, obviously, I've got a responsibility to really push to get Nazi home as quickly as possible before it deteriorates. And it will keep to deteriorating unless, unless it gets moved. Um, and part of that is, is, is airing the reality to, to as wide an audience as possible so that the more people know, the more people care, the more the right people will care enough, if, if, if that makes sense. Um, at the same time, there is... You know, the government has an obligation to keep people safe for the long term, which also is working through what to do in this, you know, one transaction that then 
doesn't have any consequences thereafter. Um, so it, it's not for me to say, listen, you pay the money up, you buggers. Um, though, you know, at times um, we, we've, we've certainly come close to it. Um, but I do think the government has an obligation to protect. I think the government has an obligation to acknowledge that <coughs> obligation to protect. I do think the government... You know, the current policy is not working because since Nazneen, more people have been taken. Um, now, that's a failure of policy, um, and it is irresponsible to be advising those families to keep quiet, um, if I'm honest. Um, and I, I think there's a need for an honest conversation about how to, to handle this. And there's a need for an honest conversation about how to handle state hostage-taking, you know, by Iran, by others. Um, there are no simple answers to it. Um, I think, you know, the UK government has an obligation not to be complicit in human rights abuse, if I put it as strongly as that. Um, and there is, there are actions which have had inevitable consequences where they're open to that challenge. Now, it's an interesting tension you always have as, as you know, I mean, ultimately, I've said some fairly tough things. I mean, most of, most of the people I work with in the Foreign Office are, are, are lovely, kind people. Uh, they're decent, they're thoughtful, they're, they're you know, um, really smart, caring people I'd happily leave Gabriella with. It's not, it's not a personal issue, but, but as an institution, um, they're like an onion. Uh, they keep secrets in themselves, they keep secrets from you, they keep, you know, um, they, they, they really, it's a, there's a really big trust gap, always. Um, and I think it's, yeah, it's, it's, we look to the, we always look to the government now. Yeah, the media's great. You, you spend your time railing and complaining about, you know, the government's useless at this, and, but at the same time look to them to solve it. Huh? Um, and there is that tension between bashing them to incentivise them, put pressure to, to get it sorted, but at the same time needing their help. Um, so I, I think we, we have, with campaigning, and, and campaigning for me has always been a kind of a, um, like a staircase. So you, you do as much as you need to do to, to get it solved. And, 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 but then escalation of pressure, uh, you know, and, and, and broadly, I, I mean, I was saying that it's like, there is no roadmap for, for a situation like this to how to solve it. Um, partly because they're a bit unique, but also because it's such a, you know, it, you know, I was four, four years ago just a, an accountant um, whinging about, you know, the congestion on the tube and how we're going to, you know, and, and, and all the kind of things that are just normal and, and you suddenly thrust <coughs> into this thing where, okay, now I've done a bit more media than I had, but, but I, you know, I remember being, being, I'm like a rabbit in the headlights the first time I went on television and just not knowing what to say and, and I'd spent however long it was suppressing how I felt and then the only question the media wanted to know was, well, how do you feel? Is, well, you know, how do you think I feel? Which isn't the answer, that, you know, to learning to be a bit less irritable and a bit more, a bit more open. Um, but there isn't a, a roadmap as to how to, to, to deal with, um, yeah, with situations like this at all, for the government, for, um, for individuals. So, yeah, I just, I don't know, I think there's, um, I can tell I've completely lost my train of thought there. <laughs> We'll take that opportunity to open it up for the audience. <laughs> uh, so stick your hand up. Uh, if you're picked on, a microphone will come to you. Uh, stand up and speak your question into the mic. So, sorry. Yeah, the um, I'm sorry if this is a more personal question than we've had up till now, but if you don't mind my asking, what is the thinking that went into your decision to bring Gabriella home and away from her mother a few weeks ago? It's, it's a really good question. So, so for those who follow our story closely, we, obviously Gabriella was in Iran when Nasdaq got arrested. Um, we kept her there at the beginning because we thought it, we thought it was going to last a couple of weeks. Um, and we didn't really do anything for a long time. Um, and actually in the autumn of 2016, the government put quite a lot of pressure on us to bring Gabriella home. Um, which was used by the Revolutionary Guard to put pressure on Nazneen. So I veto, so listen, it's Nazneen's decision. Um, back when we did that, w we had decided, well, you know, we want to bring them both home together, 
But if we get to if we get to her school age, her fifth birthday, then then we'll bring um, Gabrielle home first. And that was ages away. That just felt like a line in the sand. Um, and like lots of things with campaigning, and it, 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 I'm going to stop with my staircase. There's kind of lines in the sand where we just do stuff and and, and and move on. When we got to her fifth birthday, which was in the summer, that was really hard for Nazim. You know, there was a real build-up, and, and it, you know, and that's why she went on hunger strike. In the end, is that she was still in prison and and just desperately trying to move. So she did that, um, and then as a result of her being on hunger strike, the internal conversation around was, okay, we need to give her medical attention. So she was transferred to um, a psychiatric hospital in chains, which then had a completely devastating consequence for her. And then came out of that, and then they banned all phone calls for a month. Um, so we had a sort of a series of having made what would have been the decision to do it, and then her being put through this horrendous three months. Um, so she had agreed before, she agreed again in, in, in um, yeah, September, October. But, you know, a really sort of cumbersome process of, of, of just getting her to agree. And, and do I think it was the right thing to do? <clears throat> I mean, it's interesting. It was, we only got, so she came back, was it 10 days ago? Um, very recently, um, on the Thursday. Um, we only got permission for her to leave on the Wednesday. Um, so on the Wednesday morning, um, we were told that she was going to have to pay a year's salary um, for an exit visa. Um, and then we were told, oh, you need to get special permission from the judge and from um, the Revolutionary Guard, from the office, that they wouldn't say where the office was. So it felt like someone was just blocking it and just giving reasons. Um, and then with very senior intervention from both the British and the Iranian governments, it suddenly was loud. Um, and then she's on a plane. Coming. So I... And now she's here. Look, if I'm blunt, I, it, it's clearly been very tough, hasn't it? Um, because it was her, it was her lifeline to see Gabriella once a week. Um, you know, they stopped it um, after the psychiatric ward, they cut off visits for a while, which was incredibly tough. So it, it felt like okay, she's being used as a a bargaining chip as well. Let's let's bring her home. Um, but yes, Nazanin certainly makes it clear she can't go on much longer. Um, if, if I'm being morbid, I, I think whatever happens, I mean, I've said this to the Foreign Office behind closed doors, um, I think if we go past Christmas, she will do something. You know, there's a rhythm where we're talking about it upstairs. If you're stuck in, in prison in this sort of you know, you're, you're being held, you know, it's completely arbitrary, huh? you have no power. Um, the only power you have is, is a sort of a, a, a visceral protest, um, whether that's hunger strike or whether that's something. So every so often, all of the hostages will do it. And, and probably there's a little bit of difference between the person, person the men typically do it more frequently than women. Um, but in, so Nazni's now done three hunger strikes and each one's more severe than the, than the previous. So I would expect, if we go past Christmas, that, 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 that she'll do another one. So in that context, the hope, and it might be naive hope, is that by bringing Gabriella home earlier, it allows both governments to acknowledge the issue and also find a way to reunite the family for a Christmas occasion, whatever. Now, that might, might not happen. It really might not happen. <coughs> Um, and we might have the fallout to do it. I suspect we'd have the fallout in all cases. Um, so that was the thinking. Um, and like all things, I hadn't... I mean, it's lovely to have a backer, huh? um, but for anyone who's got kids, you know, um, small children, you know, are good and focused on, on demanding attention, thank you very much. Um, so, yeah, it, she's old enough, she's five, huh? Five's big enough to understand a fair bit of what's going on. Um, and she sort of able to articulate it's, it was interesting so when she came back she had was you know it was a couple of days where she was a bit shy and then and going around and, and there was a sort of a backlog of christmas presents and got to see the the family dog and the cousin and, and a lovely kind of happy excited discovery and then it caught up with her um and there was a period where she wouldn't talk to her grandmother or her mum on the phone because you know it was kind of a, a, a coping with dislocation and not 
which was obviously very hard for them because they were feeling terribly guilty that they'd allowed her to leave and the poor thing. Um, and then now she sort of has moments where she gets sort of busy and enthusiastic and, and wrapped up and, and will happily show, I mean, her granny, because she's on Skype, this is my dolly's house and, and so on. Um, and then we'll still have moments where she, you know, doesn't want to see me and, and you know, is, is struggling with, with, she wants to be back with granny because um, granny's looked after with her for the last three years and, and where's granny? And, and of course, yeah, it, it's a hard transition. Um, so I think there's a, for my sort of policy rhetoric there, um, at the moment, the, the lived experience is very, very personal about sort of getting back to normal. Um, one of the things, I come to it in moments here, with, with, you know, there's a lot of me having this past week being like a campaigner and a sort of a campaigning husband and, and having to remember also to be a real husband and a, and a real dad. Um, and you know, when someone wants to come home, and one day they think we'll come home, and, and coming home is about coming back home, like to a real place. It's not coming back to some sort of professional media campaign that, you know, that's not what anyone wants. Um, and actually, having Gabriella back has, has revived. You know, I mean, I was just complaining that, that you, you, you do end up becoming a sort of a sort of a moody bachelor again if, if the kids are away for long enough and just you know the flat wasn't clean properly and, it, and actually having to, to you know brush up again and all that sort of and, the, and the, the house again is much more alive um, with toys everywhere of course and, um, and, and all that stuff but it but it's um, yeah it's uh, it's it's definitely a new step and a new start and, and hopefully um, we'll unlock um, yeah unlock another release I think we have time for one more question, if we want to go right here. Right here. In the front row. Hi, thank you so much. Um, I had a question, it's also a bit more personal, so feel free not to respond. I'm a child psychologist, and I was quite interested when you were saying that, obviously your daughter's now five years old, so old enough to understand certain things. And I think I was just quite curious if there were certain things that you knew about, for instance, the hunger strike, or how do you explain that to a five-year-old? And also, and this is probably particularly painful, but I was curious about things like longer-term difficulties that she might face and have to cope with. Yeah, no, it's a really good question. Um, in terms of what she understood, obviously, you know, like all children, she understands more than you think she does. And, and um, you know, there's a sort of, parental aspiration of keeping her innocent and protected and then you realise that, that she knows more. Um, certainly for my in-laws, for the years where she was in Iran, they, they didn't want to tell her that Nazim was in prison and then one day she was in the park and um, one of the other mothers in the park said, oh, where's your mummy? She said, oh, she's in prison, she said. Rather than all rushes, so that's not what you think. <laughs> We're respectable. <laughs> if that matters. Um, and, and certainly, yeah, she... She, it was interesting, in the early days, she would sort of almost like cope in compartments, if it were. So, so she would do things with mummy uh, in visiting, like, so she would do drawings, and she would only do drawings to mummy, and then she kind of think well, that was something that she would specially do elsewhere. That was uh, and a need to sort of assert a, a bond with mummy. Um, she would never dance in prison, um, and she would dance with lots of other, and that became one of her things to do and to sort of show off how good she was at dancing, and still is, but, but she would never do it in prison. Um, she wouldn't ever talk to me about prison and what prison was like. Just, just refused to. That was, was something she didn't like talking about. Um, in the last few months before she left, she, she wouldn't want Nazneen to talk about prison life while during a visit. Like this was her time with Mummy, and, and you know, if you want to, to, to call Granny and talk about it, but you do it on the phone. Right? But this is this is um, you're on my time. Um, and yeah, I I think. When the hunger strike happened, um, you know, and, and th you can throw a charge of, of irresponsibility there. When both parents are going on hunger strike simultaneously, it's, it's tough. Of it. um, so there was a sort of a sitting down and explaining to her, by Nazni, not by me, um, that, that <coughs> my daddy going on hunger strike. And, and, but, but it, it, you know, she was at the level where she understood <coughs> fairly matter-of-factly. So that means you can drink, but you can't eat. Okay. And why are you doing it? Well, we're doing it because you know, it'll get mummy out. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and then she got to see my tent, and she quite liked my tent, and, and we're probably going to go camping afterwards. Um, and, and then, bless, when Nazanin ended the hunger strike, so I explained that I was going to end it. And she said, well, can you not, my mum's not, can you not continue it for a bit longer? <laughs> I said, it was quite hard. <laughs> 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 
Um, and and now, yeah, I I mean it. For her to find her feet, and for her to find the words to say that's hard. It's hard at the moment, um, and will be for a while to come. And and I think. I mean, like a fundamental, simple level, it's about abandonment, really, isn't it? So she had her parents, and then her parents disappeared, and her grandparents brought her up, and her grandparents have disappeared, and now she's with her dad, and, and temporarily with, with her uncle. Um, what she really does dislikes doing is, is saying goodbye, and, and that's a manifestation of that. Um, she doesn't, certainly used to hate it around with her, but Granny got cross with her, because, you know, Granny's the one she relies to. She, she's got that great ability to make quick relations with people because that's useful then. Um, but I think, yeah, I would imagine it, it for her to sort of trust this is her place and, and, and one of my jobs now is to make London feel like home and, and you know, that it's quite stable and secure and, and, and you know, it, I mean, parenting at the best of times is, is learning through mistakes, so I, I think this will be as well. Um, but she's definitely... She lives in the moment, huh? like, like, like small children are more resilient than, than the adults in some ways. Um, so, you know, Nazneen worries about all sorts of things and worries about, you know, Gabriella's very clear where she's dissatisfied with something and, and you know, whether that's bedtime or what she's been offered to eat or going to the park. And, but, you know, she's, she's still a normal five-year-old in that sense. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think, I think with a lot of this, you know, part of it is crossing each bridge when you get to it. Um, and, and part of it is, is relying on everyone around to help us through. Um, and that was one of the things I was saying upstairs, that you know, doing things like this, doing all the campaigning we do, part of it is because it might mm, prod a difference and put pressure and so on, but, but a bigger part is probably just drawing on the strength of people caring and, and recognising the world should be different and, and, and shouldn't be like this. Um, and that kindness, I mean, when we walk down the street now with Gabriella in the neighbourhood, People say, oh, it's lovely to see you. you know, and, and that's quite, I mean, that's lovely. That's lovely. Um, and that kind of, if you articulate a problem, people can help you through with it. You know, it's true always in life. Um, but, but really important in this, in this context. And I don't think I'd appreciated that to anywhere near the extent I do now, three years ago. It's, it's, it's because of ordinary people just caring and, and coming to events and, and putting messages, that, you know, and, and, and asking lovely questions. It, yeah, that's what, what gets you through. I'm afraid that's all we have time for. That was really fantastic. Can everyone please join me in thanking Richard Rector?